Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that redefines farming, ranching, and food systems. In today's episode, we're excited to bring you an in-depth conversation with Paul Brown from North Dakota. Paul shares his journey in managing the ranch and starting a direct marketing business while advocating for regenerative agriculture. We discuss the controversial Summit Carbon Pipeline, its potential impact on rural economies, and explore innovative ways to sequester carbon. Get ready for a thought-provoking episode that'll reboot your perspective on agriculture and the environment. This episode is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals, the first step in regenerative agriculture. C90 offers a complete spectrum of natural minerals and trace elements that feed soil biology, enzymes, and fungi to help regenerate your soil matrix and improve soil fertility. Herd and pasture health starts with soil health, and C90 restores the optimal mineral balance needed for healthy, productive soil. Naturally unlock locked-up fertilizer nutrients, expand root networks, and reduce drought risk. And invest equally in this season and the ones to come. Give us a call today, and our experts will help develop a complimentary custom program that fits your operation. Call 717-580-1458 or visit www.sea-90.com. Available nationwide and around the world. Hey there, Ranching Reboot listeners. Do you want to support our mission of promoting regenerative agriculture and telling the stories of those who are changing the food system for the better? Then consider joining our Patreon community and becoming a patron today. By becoming a patron, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content, merch rewards, and more. Your support will help us continue to bring you fresh stories from some of today's most innovative and progressive farmers, ranchers, and other producers of food. And don't forget to join our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans, discuss current events and past podcast episodes, and get exclusive updates on what we're working on behind the scenes. Our Discord community is the perfect place to share your thoughts and ideas, get feedback on your ranching projects, and learn from other experts in the field. Whether you're a rancher, farmer, or just someone who cares about where your food comes from, you'll find a welcoming community of like-minded individuals on our Discord server. So join our Patreon community and our Discord server today, and let's keep rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Ranching Reboot is your favorite regenerative ag podcast, and we can't wait to continue bringing you valuable content with your support. All right, crew, I need to come clean. For the last two years, I've been taking grass-fed beef organ supplements. A few months ago, I reached out to several different brands, and I'm pleased to announce that I found a brand that I can align with. Introducing OneEarthHealth.com grass-fed and finished beef organ supplements. Look, we all know that the liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods available. Packed with iron and B vitamins, it's a great source of choline and folate. Sourced from grass-fed and finished cattle with no fillers. I take the beef liver blend and the organs blend, which includes spleen, pancreas, kidney, heart, and yeah, a little more liver. I take them every day and I feel great, except when I forget. Then I notice I have less energy and less focus. Check them out. Go to www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or click the link in the show notes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back for another episode. I um, kind of have somebody pretty special today. I have Mr. Paul Brown 
from North Dakota. Some of you might have heard of his dad, um, Gabe. He's only marginally famous. So, Paul, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you this morning? Doing pretty good, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Just got in from pushing some snow this morning. Seems that we've had our, our fair share this year. We're, we're about six inches from breaking the record. So I think we're going to get there. I I kind of want to make a comment about never cuss the moisture because we don't have any, but uh, it's also supposed to be 80 degrees here today. So you can keep your snow <laughs> for a while, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll come down and visit. You know, I've been to Kansas in the summer and I said I'd never go back, but uh, maybe it's the place to go in the winter. Um, I, that might even be a stretch. Um, it just doesn't get, it doesn't get quite as cold here and we don't get the snow, but the same winds that y'all get up there, you know, we have them down here. So we'll have days where it's 15 degrees with 40 mile an hour wind and bright sunshiny day. You look outside and it's like, oh, it looks so nice. And then you put on Mm -hmm. the permit you own, you go out there and the wind just cuts right through you and you're like, okay, screw this. I'm going back to the house. But gotcha. And and we don't like we don't get a lot of winter snow like you guys do. Most of our moisture here is gonna come April, May, June, July. April, May, June. Usually mm-hmm. kind of our three biggest months for rain. And well, I yeah. guess I'll give something away. You know, we're re- recording this like uh what is this, like the second day of spring. And whew. I'm glad you. I'm glad somebody in the plains is getting moisture because we're not getting any down here. That's that's just about all I'll say. The third week of March, yeah, just it's ugly, ugly, ugly dry. Well, hopefully it comes your way this year. Well, every drought so far has been ended with a rain. Like th- th- there's two facts about drought. Every drought that we've ever had has been broke by rain, and there will be another drought. Like I, I know those two things for right. certain about drought, and um. That's about it. Yeah, there's not much else you can do about it. So a lot of us out here in um, that aren't your neighbors, we all know your dad. We all we've everybody's heard about Brown's ranch and what and what Gabe's doing. So what part of that what's your part of that these days? Uh now I'm managing full time all the ranching aspects. I mean, when I came back from college in twenty ten started nurse by nature which is our direct marketing business and that was kind of my segue or path um into farming and ranching more or less at least that was the direction that i saw the place going and that's what i wanted to start so my focus had been on that for the last you know 10 15 years and now that my parents are pretty much retired from the operation now i'm taking that over I imagine Gabe spends most of his time either sitting in front of a computer or on an airplane or in his truck going somewhere to talk to somebody. Pretty much. Yep. Maybe one of these days I'll get to the point where I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Have fun. It doesn't sound like much fun to me. You know, and I get that. And there's times where I feel like about every seven, eight years, you kind of almost reinvent yourself. Like mm-hmm. you get stuck on a path and you're stuck there seven, eight years. Then you, you know, as, as you're working through that, you kind of you know, approach mastery or, you know, a, a fairly high skill level over those seven to eight years. And when you get to that point, I feel like a guy kind of like maybe stagnates a little bit and you either need to get 
you need to do something new. You need to break out and you need to go do something, something else just for a change of, mm-hmm. just for a change of, of pace, change of view, I guess. And that can be difficult for guys like us. Cause it's, right. it's not like, you know, we're going to give up and quit ranching and, you know, go be paramedics or something. It's, we have to find new things on the ranch to help stimulate, stimulate interest, I guess. And, and, and give us things mm-hmm. to still work towards and, and try to master. So what, uh, what sorts of things are you guys direct marketing up there? Uh, we're direct marketing well, on the branch. We've got our laying hens, pigs, sheep, and cattle. And then we outsource our pastured chicken and also maple syrup. And then we also produce honey on the ranch. So those are our main things that we're, that we're doing. And then we sell all kinds of frozen products from those. And then we're starting a new like meat stick and jerky line, try and uh, boost a little profit profitability on on kill cows that's the meat sticks and jerky that's kind of a direction that i'm looking at going to try to recoup some value from a you know from an old Mm -hmm. animal that's not going to be you know that's definitely not going to bring you a whole lot at the barn but it'd be and it's almost a waste to turn it into ground beef it seems like right yeah yeah i mean you take a beating if you sell those kind of animals at the sale barn so let's try and turn them into something that's more high value and i think i think a lot of guys are kind of sleeping on beef jerky yeah it's it can cost a little bit of money to get made but the kind Mm -hmm. of the cut the cut of meat that goes to make beef jerky you want a really really lean cut like you you want almost no marbling to make you know so it dries down effectively well, you don't get that from a feedlot animal. You get less marbling or, you know, smaller marbling from a more grass-finished animal, especially an older cow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if you look at, like, a lot of the jerky and meat sticks that you can – that are available to people these days, they're they're garbage. <laughs> if you, you know, I'll sacrifice my body and try them every now and then, and, you know, it's no wonder why people are going away from eating beef. The, the ones I like to eat, and I talk about them here on a podcast, there's might even been an ad for it about seven minutes ago, is uh, is Bobo Links from Blue Nest. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really like them because they're naturally fermented and they've got no nitrates in them. They don't leave, they don't leave like right. a feeling in your mouth when you're done. They don't feel like, you know, they don't feel like you sucked on a stick of butter or something and, you know, you don't have that grease in your yeah. mouth. There's no aftertaste and they're just, they're just good. And I, right. And you know, there, there's been so much research come out, like almost every day when I pop open my Google news feed, there's some other article about hyper processed food or food additives, or, you know, I even saw one yesterday where they were talking about glyphosate residue in food and that there's places looking to regulate that. And it's not, I guess what I'm saying is, and I think you'll agree with me is, like there's a lot of food that has just a little bit done to it that completely alters what it is. Like I kind of think when you put traits yeah. in your meat sticks that maybe that's not the healthiest thing to put in your gut long-term. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I hundred percent agree with that. You look at all the additives and all the food that you can get at the supermarket. It's just 
it's crazy, you know, and we wonder why there's a health crisis. I mean, I think I saw a statistic the other day where like 50% of Americans are be diabetic or pre-diabetic by 2050. Oh, I think it's way more than that. Well, it could be. I think very well could be. I think there's also maybe a like a, a hidden problem that nobody's really talking about. You know, it, as as our population gets less healthy because we're eating these, you know, hyper processed foods, ultra processed foods that you know whether or not we want to agree that glyphosate or any of the synthetics have you know transfer into the food supply or screwing up humans we don't need to argue about that but we can definitely say that the you know hyper processed and ultra processed foods and some of these chemicals that are in them aren't doing us any favors the the number of people that are pre-diabetic or di or developed adult onset diabetes like, that number is just the, the percentage of those people is just skyrocketing every year like right why can't we do something about this and honestly, I think that, that there's, because there's money in treatment, there's not a lot of money in cure. There's zero, yeah, there's zero profit yeah. in prevention, but there's a hell of a lot of profit in treatment. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't make money off of healthy people, so let's not focus on those, right? You don't make money off of healthy or happy people. You have to get them scared and think right. they're sick all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people are, and just, I mean, imagine how that affects their mental state as well. Oh, yeah, that's, I don't think, uh, we could probably talk a little bit about mental health in ag, but I don't think we want to start cracking into mental health in the general population. That'll definitely get me canceled. Um, <laughs> one thing I've wanted to ask you, and I'm not quite sure how to phrase it, so because my dad's been in ranching for a long time and he's always, he's been active going out and speaking and, you know, doing, you know, and, and speaking at conferences about things that he's done on the ranch and experiences he's had, he was, he's been kind of fairly well known, you know, in, in certain mm -hmm. ag, ag circles, ag communities. And so in, in 2006, when I got out of the Navy, you know, we were going to conferences together and, and, you know, doing a lot of things together. And I kind of found that it started to wear on me after a little while when I'd go somewhere and I'd introduce myself and the person I was talking to would go, Oh, you're Ted's son. Do you ever, do you ever get any of that being, uh, being the son of Gabe? Yes. <laughs> get it all the time. You know, my fiance and I took ranching for profit last year, just over a year ago. And, you know, we're designated our tables and I was sitting there and it finally dawned on someone and I saw it in his face that was sitting across from me at my table that I got to know well, obviously. And it finally dawned on him. I think it was like the second day and he just kind of gave me this starstruck look and I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Gabe's son. So normal guy, you know, <laughs> but yeah get it all the time it i don't know is what it is it's i don't know it's it, i guess it's not as much my path to be as well known and outspoken I, I don't like going to travel and speaking as as much as my dad does i mean it's great that he does 
very good advocate for regenerative ag, but not really my piece. I prefer to stay back on the ranch and do some management and try and connect our ranch to our local community more. It's my focus. I like it. And I kind of feel the same way. Um, my dad's not quite as, you know, my dad's probably not as good on the speaking side and the connecting side. Um, so I guess I'm more slipping into that role. Obviously we're, you know, doing podcasts. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, I, I do, I do all the social media, which, you know, sometimes does get a little bit, does get a little bit overwhelming. So I just have to put that down and not worry about that. And we'll just, we'll mm-hmm. just on, continue doing the things that we can do. And it's, I want to say it's, it's been, it has been a, it was a struggle for me, right? It was a struggle yeah. for me to kind of develop my own identity. Um, let's see, it was, it was somewhere around like 2013, 2014. I was invited to go speak somewhere. And I, I think I had to go down to like to Dallas or Fort Worth or something for this conference to speak at it. And you know, I, I only had like a 30 minute slot, you know, I had all my material prepared, had it practiced and I go down there and I do, I do my thing on the first day and I'm like, yeah, okay, that didn't, I didn't feel that great about it. And then the second day mm-hmm. I did it again and man, I just, I just felt like such a total imposter. Like I felt like such a total imposter. Like, like I was only there because of who my dad was because I didn't feel like sure. I had done anything at all yet on my own. And I was just there talking mm-hmm. about things that dad had done or that dad and I right. had done. And so I, I, I've never really, I think I've told this, but not on this podcast, but I think it was on another podcast. So after I came home from that and I, I really got to thinking, I thought, I need to be recognized. I, I feel like I need to be recognized for what I do because of what I do, not because of who I am, not because of my last name. So that's why mm-hmm. I, that's when I started my Red Hills Rancher page on Facebook. And I start I started trying yeah. to post a lot as Red Hills Rancher and that was kind of my identity because and and for a while you know there really wasn't, you know, a a, a huge public link between Red Hills Rancher and Brian Alexander. There just, there just wasn't like, I didn't really publicize that, but you know, kind of when it came out, I was like, yeah, that's me. Um, but that was really important to me to be, to develop a following without having my dad's name attached to it. That, and that's when I started to, that's when I started to realize, okay, I, I have something that, that is all mine that dad didn't give me. I have, I have this, I made this, this is me. This is who I am. And these are the people that want to listen to me because of, because of me, not because of who dad is. And right. that was really, that was really important for me to develop on my own. And now when I go to, now when I go to a conference and somebody's like, Oh, Hey, is your dad Ted? I'm like, yeah, that guy's pretty great. Isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say that, uh, I mean, no offense, but I'm not sure that I've heard of Ted Alexander. Maybe I live under a rock, but you're the first Alexander that I've heard of. So. That's okay. Maybe it's because I'm a little younger generation, but so there you're, you're carving on your path. Well, I gotta, I gotta tell another little story. So this was, this was probably 
between 2016 and 2018. So it was after the big fire while I was still, I was spending a lot of time in a, in a leased excavator going out and clearing up, cleaning up, burn up cedar trees so they wouldn't, you know, fall down and make a mess of pickup sticks. Yeah. I was sitting in that excavator one day, just, you know, having a good time, listening, jamming out, just making trees disappear. And one of the guys that I'd known for, I don't know, maybe a year at this point down in Texas calls me up and we chat for a couple minutes and I could tell something was on his mind. And finally he goes, all right, I got to know, I, I got to have your opinion. Gabe Brown in North Dakota, is he legit or is he full of crap? And I said, well, I'm pretty sure he's legit. I mean, he's got the soil testing. He's got the science. You know, it's he's been very consistent about what he's been saying. I, you know, I definitely think he's on to something. And that, that really, it was an interesting feeling that somebody was calling me to see if Gabe Brown was legit. Like, okay. So, yeah, those, those are my two little stories. Um, one of, one of my friends, one of our listeners wanted me to ask you about your cows. Do you guys still have speckled park cows? Uh, we have some we kind of sold that herd, I think to Monty bottoms in Illinois in 2018, I believe it was, but we still have some. Yeah. And they're, they're awesome. I kind of regret having sold those, but <laughs> What did you yeah, like? they are. Uh, they definitely finish well. Very docile. Don't get hot because we do get extreme heat. I mean, maybe not compared to you guys, but Mark Debu once told me that Bismarck, North Dakota, is the coldest place he's ever been and the hottest. So <laughs> something that stuck out to me. But yeah, they very docile, easygoing animals. Finish well on grass. Really adapted well to what we're doing here. So what did you replace them with? Uh, mainly our black Angus and red Angus. We just continued expanding those. It's kind of a, you know, my, my gold rec market, hundred percent of what we raise here and we're not quite there yet. So I guess some of our reasoning too, is that, you know, it's, it's not very easy or you take a beating at the sale barn, if you're going to sell white steers or speckled steers. So that was some of our reasoning, you know, we're almost to that point where we don't have to sell anything on the commodity market anymore. So now I'm, like I said, I'm kind of wishing we had them back. Yeah, that's fair. I've always heard that they're, you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't say I've always heard, but there's something that sticks in the back of my mind that the speckled parks have some good qualities that shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they fit really well into to our herd when we first brought them in and they they finished excellent on grass, excellent mothers. It's uh, yeah, I guess it's just the, the white thing on the commodity market, but it's kind of funny that there's a, there's an awful lot of racism. It seems like in the sale barns these days, <laughs> <laughs> there is, it's terrible, but we, we can't talk about <laughs> that. Nobody, nobody wants to talk about that. Um, but let's talk about, let's talk about soil carbon and carbon pipelines. Cause I know that's, I know that's been on your mind and been weighing heavily on you lately. So what's going on with, uh, with the summit carbon 
pipeline that's in your neighborhood? Why don't you just kind of give us some background and start us off? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So 2021, you know, we rent actually quite a bit of our land that we manage here, mostly within the family. But my cousin, who's he's a year older than me, you know, called me up and he had, was just moving out to his parents' place, which is a couple miles west of my parents. And he let us know that this, these people had approached him with this pipeline easement, you know, hadn't heard anything about it. And, and he's in the ETA zone of, of Bismarck, like urban sprawl is definitely coming for us. What's ETA um, zone? Uh, the extraterritorial jurisdiction the city has. Okay. So yeah, it's Bismarck's growing pretty rapidly. I mean, a lot of it has to do because of the oil boom, but anyways, he had first let us know about this pipeline and these people had approached him in like the fall of 2021 and they had, had a meeting scheduled you know, we checked it out and because it, it was going to affect us if it was going to go through his land, go through some of the land that we rented, some of our pasture. So they were holding this meeting at seven o'clock at the local country club. Well, 7 p.m. I went over there. No one's there. And I'm like, what the heck? Well, I guess the meeting was at 7 a.m. And I should have figured that because, you know, I imagine that the summit people were on the clock. And, you know, no one's got anything else going on on a Thursday at 7 a.m. So, right. So that was kind of the first segue into what kind of tactics these people have. And fast forward, um, they ended up moving the route because a school was being built which is now open. It's been up and running. This is its first year. Um, only a quarter mile from where it was first scheduled to go through. <laughs> so the company decided to move it and it's now on its fourth reroute. Luckily, it's not directly on our stuff, but it still borders us. The first two reroutes before this one were coming through our land. We got offered multiple easements and we had surveyors trespassing on our land, which I had to kindly ask to get off. Those surveyors, they and, think they can go wherever the hell they want to, don't they? Yeah, they the right uh, access. No, ja <laughs> Jasmine and I were on our way to a town a couple hours away to make our meat deliveries. And we came down our driveway. This is in June. And I had a survey crew parked in my driveway, had their side by side unloaded, and they were out in my pasture. And so, I mean, I had to get out. We were in a hurry and, you know, kindly tell him to get off. And he argued with me that he was on a section line. Well, my drive not a section line. It's actually a quarter line. So I, I questioned his ability to survey. <laughs> uh, ended up talking to his boss. And, and uh, just so happens the other night I was after 14 hours. Well, I didn't stay for the whole thing, but the public service commission meeting was it lasted 14 hours. It's like an official hearing on this thing. I had had enough after 10 hours and I went to the restaurant nearby, sat down at the bar to have myself a bourbon. And it just so happens I sat next to the, the head surveyor of the project. <laughs> so we ended up having a civil discussion. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's it's off of us now. It Our, our land is not contiguous. So it does is proposed to cut through and kind of split the ranch in half so we working in close proximity to this thing every day which is very concerning to me the line it's up here is uh gonna run at just shy 2200 psi it's a two foot diameter line 
and they're trying to get it uh, put in only four feet deep, which our frost line up here is eight. So it's it's kind of crazy. Um, yeah, it's so that's that's kind of where we're at today. I mean, many county commission meetings and public service commission hearing the first of may come. It's a carbon pipe. Are they? Yes. Yes. So they are carbon through it. Yes. So they're going to capture CO2 from currently they have 32 ethanol plants signed on from Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Dakota, one in North Dakota, and they're going to pump it to about 60 miles west of us, northwest of us. And then they're going to pump it 5,000 plus feet below ground. And that's where it's going to stay. They say stay, you know, who, who knows how long it'll take to release back up, but, and then they're going to just make a bunch of money off of it. They're getting $85 now. Thanks. Inflation reduction act. They're getting to $85. Done. 84, yeah. $85 a metric ton. So, you know, they're, forecasted to make like 1.5 billion annually off the taxpayer for this. Okay. So what $85 a ton just blows my mind. And yeah. Yeah, it was like 55 I think until you know there was language in the inflation reduction act that bumped it up to 85. And this is this is for CO2 that's going to be sequestered indefinitely. There is also CO2 that can be used for enhanced oil recovery, which I guess maybe I wouldn't have as much issue with, but this is supposed to be sequestered, never to be touched. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about carbon. Now we're, we're talking a little bit about, a little bit about oil, you know, hydrocarbons in the ground. We're Mm -hmm. talking about CO2 capture and whether or not, whether or not government mandated, you know, I, I think the government needs to kind of get out of some things because they're just basically pick a winner and pick a loser, and, you know, describe the smallest size that a business can exist and be and be successful to a large degree. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but like just before we, you know, I pushed the record button, we were talking a little bit about carbon and soil organic matter. And, you know, I, I mentioned that phone call that I had several years ago. And that's, that was kind of the genesis of the call was, you know, are these carbon numbers legit? Does, does this soil organic matter, mm-hmm. you know, does the claim of this increased soil organic matter, does that line up? Does that scan? Like, yes, yes, it does. And now here we are, you know, in 2023. And since we're talking about carbon, I have a carbon contract to store carbon on my ranch, on the grasslands through grassroots carbon. And... Mm-hmm. The price they're offering, uh, let's just say they're about $20 per ton. Okay. Sure. So compare and contrast the two systems. A ranch like mine, I can sequester, I can sequester some carbon. It's not, I mean, we're not talking millions of tons a year like they're gonna move through a pipeline. Okay. Well, we'll be honest about right. it. But what I can capture, I don't need any extra infrastructure for. Like the infrastructure I, I need to to catch that carbon are, are basically cows, grass, and sunlight and soil. Right? Yep, absolutely. And if they're going to pay me $20 a ton to sequester carbon on my ranch, you know, that's that to me, that's just a cherry. That's just gravy. 
you know, and the research is showing that the more quote regenerative type practices you use, you know, higher densities, frequent moves, long rest periods, the more that drives the carbon pump on in, in a native range type situation in the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think about that and what I can do and it's like, it, it's, it's not additional. It's not additional. I don't have to buy a bunch right. of machinery to do it. I don't need another business structure to do it. There's nobody else besides me and the carbon people that are going to benefit from me storing carbon on my ranch. It's not like we're going to create this big, con, you know, big conglomerate right. that's going to buy carbon from a bunch of other people and hire all these construction crews to put a pipeline eight feet in the ground, have these surveyors and these guys and the finance guys. I get that that can create a lot of economic activity, but that's economic activity that gets exported out of your region. You know, one of the things that's, yep, that's always near and dear to my heart, and I hear your dad talk about all the time, is how do we rebuild our rural economies? How do we bring profitability back to the rancher? Well, we don't do it by paying big companies $85 a ton to capture carbon and run pipelines across everybody's ranch and declare eminent domain so they have to run so they'll run one right through your front yard and fat cats get to make all the money. Let's trickle that back down to guys like you and me. And that'll really make a difference. Because that money that I'm going to get from my carbon contract, I'm reinvesting that in the ranch. I'm spending that in my local mm -hmm. community, right? That, that money should not going back to New York City so I can buy back my own stock for my own company, right? I'm going yep. to keep investing in the ranch and upgrading things like fences and water, doing more fire, doing more tree work to improve the quality of my resource. Guys building your carbon pipeline, they're not interested in that. They're just seeing dollars. Yeah. And that's yeah. pretty and that's pretty sad. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And they're just looking at dollars to be made. So yeah, this uh the public service commission hearing, which I've never I mean, this is a lot of this is new for me. Like I said in my bio to you, I'm getting more involved in government as time goes on. Not that I want to. So <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I have to. Um but at the public service commission meeting, um, you know, it just so happened that Tom Vilsack, our ag secretary, his son is on the general council for this. So position to get a bunch of money. And I'm sure he's making a bunch of money right now. There, there's and, the, uh, absolutely no conflict of interest there. None. I mean, I think that's kind of how government works now. You find and create positions for your, your kids and then allow them to to make millions they'll probably hand back some money to you i guess but so yeah it's it's just it's ludicrous i mean the whole thing is is insane and there's very few landowners here that have signed on i mean the company claims that like our county is at 51 percent. i think it sounded good to the public service commission they were above the 50 percent mark you know just as they also said that they got nine and a half million metric tons already signed up and the capacity of the pipelines 18 so sounds good for them if they're above 50 percent but in our county I, as far as in their record office they are not near 50 percent yet so um hopefully people will hold out i doubt that we'll be able to get it canceled but it would sure be nice if it got further away from 
from Bismarck. So it's kind of a, a blessing, I guess, that I, I ranch in the city because I've got a lot of people like backing us and position this the same as us. So there's a lot of voices speaking out against it. And I imagine with the direct marketing that you guys do, you have you have a way to talk to your customers to make them aware of these issues. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We you know, we send out a newsletter every other week to a few thousand people and a lot of people had never even heard of it. And that's the thing that's it's kind of been hush hush how they've gone about this. And uh you know, I at the public service commission meeting, there's a number of our customers that showed up in support, you know, just to sit there and I really appreciate that. What's so what's your biggest worry with this carbon pipeline, even though they've kind of moved it mostly off the ranch now, what it looked like it. Yeah. So, so y'all, Paul sent me uh, a picture and the way it looks like the ranch is set up, like there's a South part and that's where your dad lives. Right. And then there's the North part. Yeah, that's right. Lives. And the carbon pipeline yep. kind of comes down in between the two. And it looked like it caught maybe a corner of that North place. And then went yeah. right down the boundary of it going set. Then it came across and made a turn and went right down the right down the eastern boundary. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I guess my biggest concern is that, you know, there was a CO2 pipelines are relatively new. I think there's only currently less than 5,000 miles in circulation. And there was one that blew up in 2020 in Mississippi and sent 41 people to the hospital emergency responders had a hard time getting to the people because their motors were dying on their emergency response vehicles and people just passed out in their homes so you know our prevailing winds up here are northwest and this thing is slated to go east of bismarck and north of bismarck and that's the direction bismarck is expanding but you know then it's going to go under the missouri river they say 40 feet under the river and they're not going south of Bismarck because of Dapple pipeline. I don't know if you remember that debacle in 2016, but that was a huge fight between the, the tribes and the pipeline companies up here it just happened south of us, about 35 miles. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. They're I, gonna, I remember a little bit about that now. Yeah. So there were protesters, you know, from out of state and it's kind of a zoo here for a while, but I mean, I'm sure that's why they're not saying that's why they're not going south of Bismarck, but I'm pretty sure that's why they're not going to touch it. Um, so I guess my biggest concern is that they're not going to release the plume data if this thing was to leak or blow. And the line in Mississippi was running at, I think, like 1800 PSI and is only an eight inch diameter, whereas this is two foot. So the amount of CO2 in this thing is a lot. And it concerns me that the company also at the PSC hearing said that they're not going to add any odorant or hydrogen sulfide in there so that you can even tell if there is a leak, like, you, you know, you'll just pass out and I guess hopefully someone responds to you, but they, they are not releasing any of the plume data um, for it. If there, if there was to be a leak because it falls under critical infrastructure for the country and therefore it has the anti-terrorism um, component to it. So they're using that angle, but you know, it's, I mean, the, the balance of hundred thousand people's lives are in this thing. So, you know, you think, think there'd be some leeway there sharing that, but 
Yeah, there's 100,000 lives in the balance, but we can't tell you any of the details because some terrorist might find out. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, oh, I'm I'm absolutely sure that they do, and it probably doesn't look pretty is is what I imagine. So um, then, of course, if they release that data, then, you know, obviously no one would want this thing anywhere near them. I mean, let's be honest, though. A two-foot wide pipe buried four to eight feet in the ground that's not exactly an easy target <laughs> i mean yeah right if you're a little yeah, off absolutely. you're not gonna find the pipe yeah you know and even when they know where the yeah. pipe is buried sometimes they still can't go find it when they're trying to dig it up with an excavator yeah right yeah and I, you know more to it there the company was saying they'd put uh valves spaced every 20 miles you know, which is quite a distance in it, at a line with that much pressure. Most natural gas lines are around 1,400 PSI. You know, with that much pressure, they need to be spaced a lot closer than 20 miles because you can't just shut off a valve, you know, with a click and then not have any structural damage to the pipeline. Like, it's going to be a series of shutdowns coming from Iowa, which is where the control center is. So, yep. Yeah, it's. It's pretty when crazy. Got, when you've got a pipe that's two foot across and there's fluid moving through it, stacked with 2,200 mm-hmm. pounds of pressure, it's uh, it's moving all that fluid, all that gas has a lot of inertia. And if they just slam a valve shut, you know, that creates a pressure wave yep. effect in that pipe that could blow something else out. And Yep, absolutely. You know, I, yeah. I come from Navy engineering. So, like, I speak the language mm-hmm. of pumps, pipes, and valves. I can't have too many valves in a system like, oh, okay, let's be able to isolate this. Let's be able to bypass this. Let's be able to cross connect that. But, but piping in a ranch water system is a little bit different. Like I'll draw it out on paper and be like, yeah, I don't need half these valves. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And yeah, it seems like there's more opportunity for leak when you have more, I guess, but. Yeah. I'm also like, one of the channels I watch on YouTube is, uh, I think it's called the chemical safety board and it's their government government agency. And they go out and they investigate like industrial plant accidents. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, there's a refinery fire in Philadelphia. Like it takes them two or three years to do the investigation and put the video out. Um, yeah, they, they put out a bunch over the last 10 years and the pattern is pretty consistent. Generally, it's old machinery that doesn't work as expected. That's where the problems really lie. So like, and, and where I'm going with that is, you know, okay, they build this, they build this, they get the pipeline built. It's all automated run by a guy in an office in Iowa and it's Mm -hmm. all computer controlled, connected to all these valves. Okay. I get that. I've worked on enough valves to know that electric valve operators fail pretty often unless they're tested regularly and maintained regularly. Right. I also understand that, you know, the internet is a, uh, it, it's not 100% reliable. So whatever, however they're going to use to remote control all this system, 
you know, I, I would hope they're using more than just regular internet. I would hope they've got some kind of dedicated control lines for it. So if like the internet does go down or cell phone yeah, parts absolutely. go down, that they still have control over their pipeline. Like that would be one of my bigger concerns. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess one other thing I was going to bring up about it is that, you know, state law is 500 foot setback. So that means that any new pipeline coming in cannot go within 500 feet of an existing residence. Our county commission just Monday night passed a resolution saying they don't want it within two miles of an existing residence. So I'm glad that they stood up and did that. But but getting back to the 500 foot setback, my neighbor directly to the east of me has signed and he has a half mile bordering us. And so when the pipeline company came to us, the easements were usually 150 feet in our property line border. So, and I'm sure that that's what his is. I, I don't see any reason why it would be any different. So if that's the case, him signing his easement dinged 350 feet of my property then, you know? so. I mean, I'm posing my question to my lawyers like, okay, and he's a banker, he owns a community bank and, you know, flies jets everywhere, but whatever. It's not that I have anything against him, but he just never had came in to me and had a conversation with me before he signed it. So my question is like, him signing that easement, our land now is probably, would be valued minimum 4,000 an acre. You know, just by him signing that pen, our land devalued by over two, $200,000, you know, and it's not that I'm interested in selling. I, I don't ever would. I don't know. I mean, it, some days I get sick of ranching in the city, but, you know, it's something that I would want the ability for generations to come. Like if they want that option to sell, then I would hope that they are able to get full value out of this place and go and take our efforts elsewhere. But, but that was just, something I wanted to bring up about that setback because I'm not sure that neighbors or adjacent landowners realized by, you know, if their neighbors sign that their land might get devalued that fairly significant. That doesn't seem right that, that a neighbor can sign something that enjoins your property. Like, um, well, it runs parallel to our property, yeah. Well, they shouldn't be able to sign something that commits, like, your property. Sure. That com that, that allows mm -hmm. access on your property or, you know, prevents you from doing something on, on your side of the fence. Like, it, that doesn't yeah. right. Well, it's, so, I should clarify, the 500-foot setback is for existing residences. It doesn't say, you know, the, the easement itself is only, like, 50 feet wide, I think, is the easement that they're going for. So you can't build any structures on a 50-foot wide swath. Um, well, it's a 100-foot wide swath because I think it's 50 foot on either side of the pipeline. So, it, you know, the, the Century Code doesn't say that people can't build new homes within 500 feet. But who the hell would want to? <laughs> I mean, if, if that's kind of the going rule, like who the hell would want to build within 500 feet of, of this pipeline? Well, I just... I was just sitting here thinking like what's what's one of them little like 12 by 20 tiny houses cost and how many of those could a guy put up could a guy go buy like a dozen of those and set them up in a line 
across the property and say, nope, these are all existing structures. You got to move your pipeline around me. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. <laughs> Might have to look into that one, Brian. Well, I wonder, like, you can get those, like, little carports, like those little metal carports. You used to be able to get them for, like, yeah. 800 yeah. bucks. Get one of those, throw some plywood on the side and slap a door on one end and call it a house. Yeah. Yeah, get an emergency address for it. <laughs> but I I thought it was interesting, you know, the, the comment you said that the your county commissioners were trying to change that that setback to a two mile setback, that they couldn't be within yeah. two miles. Yeah, two miles of now I yep. I don't know how densely populated that area is, but it seems like if they got to stay within two, two miles away from a residence, if they're trying to even come through here, that would be a big challenge, much less trying to go, you know, a few miles East where houses are a lot closer together. Right. Yeah. And it is, I mean, basically they want to say that they don't want it in the County, um, but they just had to put it in language, you know, that would, that would make sense, I guess. Um, without them saying they don't want it in the county because I don't think that that counts. Now, unfortunately, the Public Service Commission can overrule these county commissions because the, the county south of us passed similar language as well or similar ordinances. Um, but it's ultimately up to the three people that sit on the Public Service Commission. And one of them, mind you, had to recuse herself because she owns land where it's, this carbon's being sequestered. So she's already taken the money. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm starting to get a more clear picture of what's going on. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Really yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yep. So the it's kind of funny how our government works, but anyways. Funny haha or funny tragic? <laughs> tragic. Okay. Definitely tragic. Yeah. So it, it seems like there's nobody really locally that's going to benefit from this carbon pipeline other than maybe some local businesses going to get a little extra traffic from the construction crews. Like it, yeah. And I'm not even sure the construction crews are within state. You know, there was our Senator in our local district eight. He's awesome. He proposed a bunch of uh, bills addressing CO2 because in 2009, our legislature put in the language that CO2 pipelines could be deemed as common carrier along with natural gas, oil, uh, transmission lines. So by them adding that language to our century code, it gives Summit Carbon Solutions, if deemed a common carrier line by the Public Service Commission, the authority to utilize eminent domain. Um, so anyways, the Senator in our district, he brought like three or four different bills, like one to exclude CO2 pipelines from that language, scratch it out of there, which I was all about. Um, Another one to compensate landowners like 33% above market value if eminent domain was used. And then there was one other one addressing surveyors need to have written permission before they can go on your land because I wasn't the only one who they trespassed on. Luckily, that one did go through. Um, and the one that pertained to, I think it was the 33% above market value, the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources committee they you know discuss these bills and they have hearings testimonies people go in 
they had actually voted in favor of one, went into general session, came back about an hour or two hours later after general session to rediscuss these, and they rescinded their votes and then recommended do not pass. So all these bills, these three, they got killed on the Senate floor, unfortunately. But uh, it's just kind of funny. So I wonder what lobbyists grabbed those people in the hallway <laughs> and, and like made them go back in the room and change their mind on the vote. You know, they say they learn new information during general session. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so, what, what new information? Pretty, pretty sad to see. Yeah, exactly. So what deals were made? And in those testimonies for these bills, there was one landowner that was in opposition to the bills. And it was a landowner that is in the sequestration zone where they get paid annually. And I'm, I'm not even sure what rate they're getting paid. Um, but otherwise, it was 99% of landowners in favor of these bills to pass. So, you know, the Senate, unfortunately, that committee sided with industry who, you know, there's lobbyists from ethanol industry and union unions, etc. Those senators sided with uh, industry and unions rather than individual people. So that was pretty sad to see. It's also predictable. Yeah. Yeah. But individual rights, you know, where are they going? It's crazy. So you uh you brought up surveyors and getting written permission. That reminded me of a of a little surveyor story. I I can't remember the year, but it this has been quite a few years ago. There was a there was a property nearby that was trading hands and surveyors were you know they're they're out with their with their gps base stations or whatever mm -hmm. and when dad took over this ranch in the mid 80s he had to have it surveyed and i remember being you know a little little dude running around and helping find like uh like the markers you you know what i'm talking about like the yeah. usps oh, yeah. yep. section corner survey marks Yep. You know, I, I got a pretty good education at an early age, what those look like, and I know where they're at. Well, this this guy, uh, we'll, we'll call him Homer. Okay, we'd had a run-in in the morning. Like, they were set up on my side of the fence where there was a reference marker, but they were working, they were trying to verify somebody else's property. So I went and talked to him. I was mm -hmm. like, you do not have permission to be here. You're not surveying anything on me. You need to take this equipment and you need to leave. And we, we had a little, like, there was obviously a little bit more to it than that. Like, so they ended up packing their stuff and leaving. Went by like 30 minutes later, their stuff was gone. <laughs> Finished up working kind of in that part of the ranch and we were headed back down to headquarters and they set it up somewhere else on the ranch <laughs> like okay you've been warned. so i called my buddy that was a sheriff's deputy at the time and i said ace here's the situation got a surveyor we've run off told him to move their equipment off the ranch already once they went and they set it up somewhere else on the ranch and he said can you get to their equipment and i said yes i can he says pack it up and bring it in to me so the surveyors yeah. had moved their stuff and they'd gone to town to go for lunch. So I drove Perfect. down there, 
I packed up their tripod, their base station, the little box of computer and a little battery box. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm yeah. talking about. You pack all oh, yeah. that stuff up and I drove it right into the sheriff's office and dropped it off. <laughs> that was nice of you. You should have had him come out and get it. <laughs> they were they were busy or else they would have. Um gotcha. So then we went and ate and we went back to the ranch and just as if we got back to the ranch, they were sitting up there at the top of the hill wondering where their stuff was. <laughs> we both made ourselves scared. Oh. me and dad were like we both went and hid like yeah we want to get caught right. by these guys we don't want to talk to these guys that'd be fine so yeah two hours later i get a call from the sheriff's office it was my buddy the deputy apparently they had showed up and wanted to file a police report that their stuff had been stolen <laughs> let them go through this whole long process, fill out this whole detailed police report, you know, where they're describing everything. He made him get all their serial numbers yep. out, everything like just, <laughs> just made them waste as just much, waste their time. Yep. Waste as much of their time as possible. And as soon as they got done, he was like, yeah. Um, so we had somebody turn in some survey equipment a couple hours ago. You want to take a look at it? See if it's yours. <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah. So he takes him back there and they look at it. And the guy and Homer's like, yes, this is my stuff. I want to press charges on the people that brought it in. And the deputy said, okay, we can do that. But first, you're going to answer to a, tra a criminal trespassing charge. Mm -hmm. Guy changed his tune real quick when he's like, yeah. oh, you're going to hit me with a criminal trespassing charge. And then they had a discussion about respecting landowners and access and mm -hmm. no longer at like, you'd think, as a surveyor, you'd know where you are. You'd know whose property you are on at all times. Like, you think. That yeah. is your one job in life. That's your job, is right. Is locate <laughs> shit on planet Earth. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, when this guy said that he thought he was on a section line, I'm like, well, you're terrible then. <laughs> How bad are you at your job that you think this is a section line? I mean, I, that's a funny story that's great yeah so he was he was pretty upset i mean it was probably you know 10 15 20 thousand dollars worth of equipment i mean i have no mm -hmm. need for it yeah right but you know and look look if you want to set up if you need to set up on the ranch you need to get you know you need to set up your base station somewhere and go survey the neighbor great come talk to me yeah absolutely we'll, and we will yeah, work everything out Right. Yeah, yeah, and that was this. I mean, there was no no communication ahead of time. Like, they're just out there. And, I mean, word spreads pretty fast, you know, in rural communities. <laughs> so it made a lot of people not happy. So just if they're the first impression of this company, they're not doing a great job. And they know it. I mean, the company is almost acting like they know what's going to go through. They don't care. Like, honestly, don't care. It's, Paul, it sounds like one of those things that there's just a few people making so much money. They can, mm -hmm. you know, they can go buy a lawmaker here. They can go buy a lobbyist here. You know, they can pay off a couple landowners here and get eminent domain yep. and pipeline wherever they want and laugh the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it's going. So we'll see. I mean, I like I said, I don't think it'll be stop by any means but 
hopefully our public service commission does at least push it you know outside the city limits that day at the hearing they stacked the deck with their ceo coo start the meeting started at 8 30 in the morning and i left it at 6 30 p.m because i had enough of them proceeding to lie and listening to their people i thought they were just going to stack the deck with their people all day and the meeting ended up they started taking public comment at 7 p.m i think shortly after 7. so i mean by that time most everyone's gone home you know they've got a life and uh at least the PSC said that they will open up another day. I'm not sure if it's gonna be for public comment or not, but the people who are interveners who are represented by lawyers that are in opposition to the pipeline will get to be heard. So, you know, I guess we have that, but it, it was just interesting to me seeing the whole process and how they just stacked the deck with their people. And in the morning, there was probably 350 people at the hearing. By the time I left at 6.30, there's definitely less than 100. Um, it was just a long drawn out process, but, uh, I, yeah, it'd be nice if they changed the way they did things and had some public comment in the meantime, but. Let me grab my devil's advocate hat. Sure. And ask you from the other side, what from your side would make this pipeline a workable deal <laughs> for you? Like, what would they have to offer me? Is what you're asking? Yeah. 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 What What would make this pipeline uh, deal I don't, for you? I don't know how much is healthy soil worth and a legacy on the ranch. I don't. I would have no interest. So, but, but for I, them, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're, we're bound to make, I mean, billions and billions, you know, people are going to take money, people that are not attached to the land. And there's a lot of, well, actually all my neighbors that live that border my land, except Mary Jo, who's my neighbor down here, which you know, Mary Jo, um, they're all absentee landowners. They're, they don't live here. They're, you know, they either live in town or even out of state. So, you know, I don't think that there's as much connection for those people. And so, it might take more time, but this company's up against the, the time clock because they need to have this thing up and running by 2026 in order to capture those, the $85 metric ton is my understanding. So for me, they, yeah, they couldn't offer me anything. I don't want it. I, I think the whole thing's ludicrous because, you know, we're proven by increasing organic matter, focusing on soil health that we can sequester carbon ourselves. So rather than taking carbon from crappy monoculture corn farms, pumping it up to North Dakota, 5,000 feet below ground, and uh, raping the taxpayer of a bunch of money, enhancing inflation, why don't we just pay farmers and ranchers to uh, sequester carbon? Uh, no, we're not just taking it from corn farmers. We're taking it from corn farmers who are probably growing a GMO crop in a tillage system, still dependent on herbicide. Yeah. <laughs> And that, getting their carbon yes. from the ethanol plant process, which it, you're going to, I'd love to have somebody want to come on this podcast and argue with me about how ethanol is good for the environment. I, I, right. I, I will destroy you. I, eth yeah. We can't say that, that 
that we're going to trade five tons of topsoil per acre for 300 bushels of corn that turn into a few gallons of ethanol that absorbs water and is less energy dense than the diesel fuel it took to grow it. You're not going to tell me that we're going to pump water from 500 feet below the earth with a diesel motor and spray on corn and that that's efficient, that, that that's an efficient and effective use of our resources. And then we're going to truck it to a plant, distill it into ethanol to blend with our gasoline because I, I, I'm not even sure why blend it with our gasoline. And we got to have all this biodiesel, you know, it, we talk about ethanol and the ethanol industry. The, the whole root of that is the renewable fuel standard, which the renewable yeah. fuel standard and the switch of taking a lot of seed oil feedstocks that we grow in this country and using them for biodiesel instead of using them for cooking, which seed oil shouldn't be used for cooking anyway, but that's a different argument. And they're replacing all that, you know, the corn oil and the canola oil and soybean oil that used to go in our food that's now going to biodiesel, they're replacing those oils with palm oil. Well, where do we get palm oil from? We get palm oil from Indonesia mostly, Indonesia tropical countries, where they clear vast yeah. stretches of rainforest to plant palm oil plantations. But biodiesel saving the world. Ethanol is saving the world. Like, I, I've never bought it. Yeah, it is crazy. And I, but, I, think, I mean, we've got neighbors that are 40,000 acre, you know, monoculture farmers who have signed easements. So I guess they got to support their industry. At least they took a stance. Uh, one thing I was going to mention is that at the county commission meeting, it was brought up that because FIMSA is going to be regulating all this. What's and that? Pipeline, Pipeline Hazardous Safety Materials Association. And they are rewriting their rules after this Mississippi blowout. And their new rules aren't supposed to come out until the fall of 2024. That's when they're projected to. So, I mean, I think that's another reason that Summit is up against the clock. They want to get this thing in before so they can be grandfathered in before these new rules take effect. By the way, California has put a moratorium on CO2 pipelines until they come out with their new rules. So, I guess, look at North Dakota is more progressive than uh, California. <laughs> but anyways, getting back to the county commission meeting it was brought up that you know the county commission has no authority to um, like say what depth the pipeline is at through the county which is unfortunate because most people around here don't think four feet's enough just because of our freeze thaw line but one thing they brought up is that they can set the maximum tillage distance to four and a half feet so they, they can get it pushed another eight inches deeper. Apparently in some language, uh, four and a half feet is like maximum tillage depth. So I guess, you know, there's one benefit to tillage that I never realized before. <laughs> Burying pipelines under farm fields that are under a, a, still a tillage situation, that's a long-term <laughs> recipe for, for something bad yes. to happen. Um, yeah. That is absolutely right. I was going to send you uh, pictures of my neighbors. It's pretty insane. Just like directly west of my parents' home section. So 
it was 2015. I built a brand new three-wire electric fence. Usually that's what we do on our borders. Pulled out the barbed wire. I have pictures of me standing and the fence was like the top of the T posts, which were five and a half feet was like a few inches above my knees in places just because of the erosion. So we pulled that out, put a new fence in. And last fall, I, you know, I don't get to that side of the property that often. It's just in between a monoculture cornfield and our tree rows, but we were bringing bulls home from some pasture further west. And I was wondering what took my friend, he was helping me, he had his in another side by side. It took him forever to open this gate and come over to where I was at herding the bulls up so we could trail them. And I, when he got over there, I asked him like, do you have problems? And he's like, just wait till you get to this gate. The fence now is buried as much as it was. And this is, so what is it? I put it in 2015. We're now, we're going on eight years. That would have been seven years, seven growing seasons. And it's buried just as much as it was, you know, when I, as it was, as the old was when I took it out eight years ago. And you're talking like it's buried this, in dirt, dust, runoff. Dirt, yes. Yes, his fields have been blowing. And he's a corn and soybean farmer. And in the drought, um, you know, we had a record drought in twenty summer of 2021. And his fields blew constantly. He caused wrecks on the interstate. The interstate runs right south of my parents' home section. Yeah, that's how much soil he's lost. So now I'm like, I need to build a new fence again. That's only eight years old. Like so, I wonder if he he wants to chip in for that, or I mean, it's sad to see. Like we're trying to show people, and you know, we've got a wide audience of soil regeneration practices, but it's just crazy how these subsidized farmers that are just wrapped up in that game, and you know, it's land that he rents. So obviously, he probably doesn't give a shit. But that, I was going to say, it's, it's just it's, it's it's insane that this is still happening and. I mean, is what it is, but when it comes down to it, I'm gonna have to invest a few thousand in a fence. I I think we're gonna see that pattern continue of absentee landowners yeah. and tenant farmers. Oh yeah, continuing those, continuing those tillage situ continuing those tillage systems. Yeah, you know because well, this, they, yeah, mind you, this guy this guy is no till, and it's still blowing that bad. It's blowing that bad. Okay. <laughs> Why is it blowing? Yeah. If if but he's got no residue, like he, you know, corn and soybeans. I mean, the soybeans, whatever microbial act is there. He has been bailing his corn stalks. I should mention that. So that residue is being removed, and then soybean, soybeans obviously don't leave much residue. So needs a it's cover. A, uh, yeah it's not even a tillage situation yeah exactly well and livestock integrated for sure but but i was just i wanted to bring that up because it's it's just sad for me to see that you know people get wrapped in that system and it's get bigger get out i mean that's that's the direction of farming if you're going to take government subsidies and farm that that way which where's the freedom in that i mean you're just a, a tenant farmer like you said yeah yeah, well, I've got the freedom to plant corn, soybeans, or cotton. 
you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, sounds like a good time to me. I got some fields that I'm free to plant wheat or, or, or sorghum feed in because that's all that'll grow there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it, you know, and I, I don't think that situation on the whole is likely to change rapidly. I think that, that, you know, that the whole, the system that we have of absentee landowners and tenant farmers and we can change that faster by changing the subsidy system, but like any yeah, government, absolutely. any government program or handout, no matter how they sell it to us in the beginning, that it's temporary and it'll go away. They never do. Like there's no, no. such thing as a temporary government program. Like if, if y'all know of one, right. or then let me know about it. Cause <laughs> I'd love to hear about it, but there's, there's just no such thing as a temporary government program, especially one that we've had now for, 90 years yeah, with, a right. lot of these, with a lot of these commodity price supports. So it's not going away. And with land getting more and more expensive and harder to access for the next generation, like it, it's not, it's not a practical thing for somebody today to say, I want to start farming and go out and in, in two years be farming 2000 acres. That is not a practical operation for anybody. Like even, even, you know, I'm in my mid forties, like it would still be very difficult for me to go from what I'm doing now and go buy a farm, you know, regardless of whether, you know, get a hold of the whole tillage, like just the access to capital, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's right. so difficult because it's not like you can start, you know, with a 50 horsepower nine in Ford anymore and a couple of 15 foot tools. You know, you'll never make it doing, you'll never never be competitive in the commodity game unless you're at the top end of the machinery, unless you're at the top end of, of technology, unless you're the top end of land ownership. The way to win in the commodity game is to not play. Like the way to win in farming yeah. is to not play the commodity game. And, yeah, and grow something that somebody will eat, grow something that a human being will eat instead of trying to grow food for cows. Because Mother Nature's really great at growing food for cows on her own. <laughs> She's rubbish at growing, like, vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the truth. And it's just, I don't know, it's just sad to see the egg community get into that that trap. And they are trapped. I mean, the freedoms that we have because we don't take any government subsidies is just, you know, it's awesome. And that's it's one thing I'm going to start touting more and more to my customers, like, proud of the fact that we do not take any government subsidies and we've been free of it nine years now that's something that i'm definitely going to continue and you know i tell my customers they might pay a little more for our food up front but we don't have our hand out behind us taking money off the back end so we're not feeling the inflation that they're feeling by uh, taking these government subsidies it's hurting us just as much so, as hurting anybody else. Oh, probably worse. I mean, we had to increase our prices. I think like 23% here we went up um, just last month, which it was scary. I was like, oh man, what's it going to do for us? But yeah, as inflation becomes more of a thing, it's going to squeeze out the non-commodity people, I think. I mean, you can innovate for so long, but at the end of the day, at least people around here, they still want to have their their boat and camper and take off for the weekend and go for the lake. 
there's some leisure things that I, I don't think that they would be as willing to give up uh, before the quality of their food, unfortunately. I, I would agree with that. I had, uh, we'll see <laughs> a friend stopped by yesterday and we were discussing chickens and chicken coops. And he's like, yeah, they just make such a mess. All their poo everywhere. I'm like, yes, I understand. This has been, this has been the farmer's lament for thousands of years. I have to go shovel poop. Yeah. And a lot of things that we've done in agriculture in the last 150 years have been in the name of reducing the need to shovel poop. You know, yeah. 150 years ago, point. if you wanted to fertilize your vegetable garden, you can go down to Atwoods and buy a jug of miracle Grow. You can't do that. You go to your barn and you shovel up all the winter's, you know, goat and sheep and cow and, and, and pig manure. You put that in your wheelbarrow and you take that to your garden. You put it on your garden. And if there's any left over, you take it out to the hay field that you need and you put it on the hay field. And then as soon as it's green grass enough, you kick all your livestock out to somewhere that's not your hay field and not your garden and let them go graze and drop their fertility somewhere else. So much work has been done in the name of avoiding the work of shoveling manure. And like, this isn't something I came up with on my own. I'm pretty sure I heard Joel Salatin say this years ago in another, probably mm -hmm. book. You know, it starts with chemical fertility. It starts with, well, it didn't start with chemical fertility. It started with steam engines, it started with steam traction engines, then diesel traction engines, because those don't poop everywhere and you don't have to haul that fertility. Right. And then maybe as, as kind of a knock on of, losing that animal fertility. Now we really needed to lean on the chemical fertilizers post-World War II to get the fertility back in our soil or to at least the illusion of fertility back. And since then we just keep, yeah. we just keep piling on, piling down that path, getting further and further away from two things. Number one, the manure pat dropping on a living plant on living soil. And number two, shoveling shit all winter. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting how farms used to be very diverse, but now livestock are separated from farms, you know? So, I mean, it gets back to that point, you know, if they're not going to shovel shitting, well, let's just get rid of the livestock. It's totally foreign for our soils to evolve without ruminants, right? So no wonder they're so sick and depleted and it's crazy. You know, we're talking about, and th th this fits in with the larger discussion that we've been having all day about carbon, okay? We talk about soil carbon and soil organic matter, and it just doesn't appear automatically, naturally, right? We have a pasture with grass on it. If there's no ruminant animals that ever come by and graze, the likelihood of that, of that, of that piece of that area increasing in health, increasing in variety, and increasing in soil organic matter and carbon storage without ruminants is basically zero. 
But if the room, if we manage our animals incorrectly, we can go less than zero. We can totally destroy that. But properly managing the animals, we can rapidly build soil carbon and soil organic matter. And what rapidly means is vastly dependent on on context. Like, yeah, I don't think there's like we can start talking about tons of carbon per acre or soil organic matter percentages per acre. But that's a measuring contest, and it's completely irrelevant because my land is not your land. My environment is not your environment. What we need to find out is, are we doing the best we can do in our context as far as, as, far as building those things? But where I'm going is um, I had a conversation with my friend Russ Konzer. He's uh, one of the guys at Blue Nest Beef. He used to work for Shell Oil, and he's down in Houston. And yeah. Uh, I know Russ. He knows carbon. Like, you know, he, he, he likes to say he spent 30 years at Shell trying to figure out where it was and get it out of the ground. And he's trying to spend the last 30 years of his life trying to figure out how to put it back in. Yeah. Cyclical. Right. Now, okay, so he was in the hydrocarbon industry. Why is he so concerned about soil carbon? Now, now bear with me here. I'm going to go on a, on a short journey that's going to require a, a stretch of imagination. So if we, if we accept that ruminant animals affect soil biology and increase the carbon, increase the carbon storage of the soil because the carbonaceous matter that come, that's in the manure. We scale that, you know, and there's been a bunch of people regular, like lately talking about North American megafauna, the mammoths and, you know, what they did for the soil. And uh, we need to bring the megafauna back. We need to have the bison back. Let's just go all in. The biggest herbivores, the biggest ruminants we've ever had on this planet have been extinct for 160 million years. I mean, Brontosaurus. Like, you want to you talk about a ruminant animal that eats a lot of biomass? Like, let's go back to some of the dinosaurs that would eat a ton of food a day and, you know, like, poop the size of a Volkswagen. You don't think that those animals roaming around the earth for a couple million years didn't build up miles of carbon-rich topsoil and when you have a herd of animals that's going to come through and literally eat a forest and poop a fleet of cars and then come back five years later that that had to have built up a very large amount of organic matter in the soil so if that happened millions of years ago it gets covered up by rock heat and pressure that soil carbon in the soil the soil gets compacted becomes rock that carbon synthesizes into oil and is now buried a mile deep. That's how I think we got oil. It's not like, it's not dead dinosaurs. It's dinosaur poop in the soil that created the biomass. You know, the, the whole complex web of life, you know, it, to me, oil is, is complex soil carbon, miles of soil carbon, miles of, of carbon rich topsoil that was covered by rock through lots of heat and pressure, formed oil, and now we're digging that up. So the analogy that we're using a ruminant animals to rebuild soil carbon and store soil carbon, that resonates completely with me. Call it bias, call it a paradigm, whatever. I'm bought in and I'll admit that. And I think that, you know, we can build these big pipelines. We can take a bury a two-foot steel pipeline from Iowa to North Dakota. 
and pump CO2 in it at 2200 PSI and think we're saving the environment. That's, there's just so many problems. I mean, CO2 is slightly heavier than air. It's colorless and it's odorless. You know, like, I'm going to go look up what happened in Mississippi, that CO2 pipeline break in Mississippi. Yeah. I've, I've got to do some more research. Yeah, listen to, listen to some of the testimonies. Well, that so that gets back into, I mean, we're talking about depositing at 5,000 feet below ground. You know, I, I'm trying to remember where the Bakken sits. I think it's like 7,000 feet is where the crude oil is. But um, when CO2 reacts with water, it creates carbonic acid. So how long is this going to be sequestered in the soil? Will it rise up to our aquifers, therefore making our water acidic? Like, I mean, and how, how many years is that going to take? There's, you know, there's some oil people that testify at these things that I've talked to in the hallways. And I think at 2020, North Dakota pumped like 5.4 million barrels of salt water into the <laughs> stratum. And they were saying that studies now show that it might resurface somewhere over by Minneapolis at some point. So isn't that crazy? Just think of the underwater or the underground network uh, that we have, have no idea. Like, like what are going to be the repercussions of this years and years down the road? Oh, that's, it's a great can of worms. Uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a lady that I follow on social media. Um, she got real big on LinkedIn. Uh, God, I forget what they call her. Anyway, she's a she's an oil and gas lawyer, and she works mm-hmm. down in West Texas, like Midland, Odessa area. And they've got some old legacy wells that, like their their wellbore integrity is not the greatest in the top six hundred feet, and there's communication between zones. They've got, uh, <laughs> this tell you like how, how messed up things are down there. They had a saltwater injection well. I mean, and mm-hmm. like I, I saw this like little drone video. So it starts and there's this line of trucks going into this injection well. And you know, it, it's a big setup injection well, you know, bunch of tanks, big pump. Anyway, like a mile and a half away, there was a 120 foot geyser of salt water in the air from an old well that that lost integrity. There's a lake down there they call Beamer Lake that's like 50 acres. Mm-hmm. And it's a saltwater lake from produced water. I yep. it, it's got to be obvious that if we're injecting water here, if we're injecting salt water here and a mile and a half away, it's shooting out of the it's shooting out of the ground 120 feet in the air. There has to be a connection between the two. Has to be a connection between the two. There's no yeah. other way that there's not a connection between the two. But of right. course, I think in Texas, it's the Railroad Commission that's responsible for oil wells. Of course, they say, well, we've got uh, the test logs that are 60 years old from the company that did the work and said their wells were good. Well, that was 60 years ago. I mean, you don't think that pumping corrosive salt water through a steel pipe over 50 years is going to diminish the structural integrity of that pipe. And it's the same thing with this carbon pipeline, right? Absolutely. We, we We build all this wonderful complex infrastructure that's going to work so well and improve our quality of life, and then we never maintain it. 
Well, yeah. These, what the guy's going to bring up is that it was uh, 99-year easements is what they're going after. You know, so in essence, it's like look, looking at these easements, one thing that lawyers that I've talked to have brought up is that some of them have been just blanket easements saying that if you sign it, you know, they can, in fact, have all the surface rights to whatever quarter that you've signed onto, you know, and unfortunately there have been some people that do not have lawyers read through it before they sign. And so, I mean, imagine just leasing all of your surface rights through an easement, 99 year easement without you realizing it. But what, you know, what's to say that this company doesn't sell that? I know South Korea has got like 10% ownership in it, but what's to say that this company, there's nothing in the easements saying that they can't sell to China somewhere else. And then what's, what's China going to put on your land? I mean, not to pick on China, but you know, kind of a hot topic, but, but pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, they don't need to necessarily be putting stuff on the land to exercise control. They can just tell you what you can and can't do. Yeah. Yeah. Very true which I think a lot of folks get into this line of work because they're getting tired of being told what to do <laughs> and told they can't yeah. do something. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, Paul, is there, is there anything else you'd like to talk about this morning that we need to cover? You know, I think I've, I've covered what I've had to say about, about that. Yeah. It's just uh, making people aware of it. I know that we're not the only ones battling it. I've talked to landowners in Iowa as well. Same thing. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, we need to take back control of local governments. It all starts there. And they need to start, like, working for the people how it was supposed to be, uh, it was its original intention. It's not, I don't believe it's that anymore, but need to get back to that. So get involved locally. Okay. Where, um, all your direct marketing, are you pretty much selling everything out that, that you guys can make there in the Bismarck area or do you have to do you ship? No, we, no, we're, we're shipping, I, you know, ideally in a perfect world, we would direct market everything that we sell right into Bismarck. Um, we're not to that point. That is my ultimate goal is to be fully supported by our community. So we are shipping all throughout the lower 48. It's not our biggest revenue stream, but, um, and then we, we do our monthly deliveries throughout the, like for the major, major cities in North Dakota. So that's a hands-on delivery where people place their order online and then we physically meet them at a location and get them their orders. So I still think that there's something to that. You know, I see a lot of these places that are going to strictly, you know, shipping and, you know, it's such an Amazon world these days, and I think that people miss the one-on-one -on -one communication. So we've decided to keep our pickup locations, and I, shaking someone's hand to me is still very important. So, and I think to others it is as well. So I definitely think that there's value still in that. So we're going to keep those going. Reminds me of a uh, of a saying that I've heard before. I'm not sure where I've heard it, but uh, shake the hand that feeds you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So where, where can we find you on the internet and, uh, what, what do we want to have in the show notes? 
Uh, we're still keeping up our ranch page, brownsranch.us. It's kind of a transition going on now. So I think my parents will be moving here this summer. So we'll be moving down to the main ranch. And, you know, we had the internship program for a while. I'd like to revisit that maybe starting next year. So there's brownsranch.us kind of outdated. We try and keep it up. But most of our communication is through nourishedbynature.us. That's our direct marketing website and our direct marketing business. And if you sign our newsletter, we like to keep people informed uh, through our newsletters that we send out every other week. Okay. Phone number's on there. Feel free to call if you want. Email us. We get a few of those. I bet you do. You know, I, I'll say your dad is probably one of the, your dad kind of sets a good bar for email return performance. Like I'll get an email yeah. back from him at two 30 in the morning. Like he's got like, what is it? Right. 36 hour turnaround on emails. <laughs> yeah. He, he runs a tight ship there. I don't know how he does it. I am not set at that. <laughs> I, I wish I was one of these days, maybe. Yeah. Something to strive for. But I guess, you know, when you don't sleep, I guess you can, you can do stuff like that. So yeah, he doesn't sleep, does he? No, not really. It's kind of like Batman or something. Is he a vampire? He might be. (laughs) We'll have to investigate that. Yeah, you'll have to question him on that one next time. Well, I'm sure I'll, I'll probably eventually end up getting him on the podcast, maybe before he retires. Yeah. Have you had, you haven't had him on this one before? Nope. Oh, sorry. I thought you had. No. Nope. Yeah, you should get him on there. No, you come the, on here. You're you're the first. Oh, one I'm Brown's Ranch. I'm the initial Brown. Oh, yeah. okay. Sorry, I didn't realize that. I've listened to your podcast. I mean, don't get me wrong, but uh, I hadn't looked back. I I figured he was already on here, but no. Nope. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's great to chat with you, Paul. Great to get to know you today you too yeah absolutely we'll we'll get to meet at some point i know that we have a lot of fellow friends so imagine our paths will cross down the road here there there's an extremely high chance that we'll run into each other at a conference one of these days and we don't even know the other one's at sounds like yeah might happen. yeah it's pr- sure for sure well i hope a good season down there and well uh prayers for rain for you well, if we can just get a little bit of rain, I think I'll survive. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we'll get it one day. Could all could all change? Yeah, for sure, it's coming. All right, I sure appreciate it, Zay Paul, and uh, I'll let you get on with your day. And the rest of you out there in podcast land, go get out there and have a great week. Thanks, Brian. Take care. <laughs>